Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. We're in a series right now called The Passion of the Christ. Today is part five. The suffering of Jesus, this from the moment in the garden where he's praying, Lord, let this cup pass from me, betrayal. Um, we are going through, to be frank, the darkest moment in human history, period. And somehow you guys keep coming every Sunday. So it is my hope that the spirit of the living God is showing you every week that it is the darkest point in human history that gives hope. It is the death of Jesus Christ that gives life to his people. There is no resurrection on Easter Sunday morning without the hell of Good Friday. We're going to celebrate Easter in a few weeks. I've used the illustration before, but I want to just say it as simply as as I know how. If your doctor called you and with joy in his or her voice said, hey, they found a cure. What? They found a cure. It's one little pill. It's only five bucks. No big deal. Come over to my office right now. I'm going to give you the pill and it's going to save your life. And that was the first conversation you had with that doctor. That would be very confusing. I mean, it sure sounds positive. A pill that's going to save my life. It's only five bucks. A doctor is signing off on it. That's great. Um, Was I dying? And this is why I've said now, really, I guess, in my whole adult life, in a post-Christian culture, are you saved bumper sticker just means less and less. Because more and more the culture is going saved from what? If there is no God, if he has no rights to tell us what is ethical and unethical, if there is no moral law, how could I be guilty of it? How could I be guilty of breaking it? So more and more, it is critical that we see why is the God-man suffering this horrendous death and why are Christians claiming that this is what gives life? Jesus dying in our place cannot have any meaning whatsoever unless I am first guilty before God. Aren't you glad you came to church today? I have to have broken an unchangeable, eternal in its value, law of God to be guilty. And not just guilty, but billions and billions of us are so incredibly guilty that no sacrifice could possibly atone for what we've done. No no one could possibly stand in our place unless he's not just morally perfect, but he's eternal in his beauty and his power and his worthiness. The death of Jesus Christ, apart from your guilt and apart from his deity, is a sad historical footnote. Oh, they killed a nice guy. That's too bad. It's a minor detail in your world civilization class in college, and and then we move on. The reason it has to get this dark, and it is dark, 
is that every drop of what Jesus is experience, what he's experiencing, is before the righteous judge, God, he is experiencing what billions and billions and billions of saints, what we deserved in hell for eternity. You do the math. What is eternity of suffering and punishment times billions and billions and billions of people? So Jesus is staring into hell itself and he's going to stare it down and he's going to win. He's going to win. That's why we teach this. If there was no Easter, we wouldn't be teaching this. If there was no Easter, I wouldn't be a Christian. I don't know what you're doing with your Sunday mornings. So we stare into the darkness. We stare into the darkness in a culture that has addicted us to comfort, has addicted us to fun. We stare into the darkness. Because the darkest point in any epic film or in any awesome novel, fictional novel that you ever wrote, the darkest moment when it seems like there's no hope is when the hero steps up. And so you're glued to your seat and you pay close attention. The story's dark for a reason. Something amazing is about to happen. In fact, it's already happening. It's already amazing before Easter morning. Step by step, Jesus is defeating the darkness. He's being betrayed so you don't have to be betrayed. He is alone so that you don't have to be alone. He is accused so you are no longer accused. He is beaten so that you are not beaten. He is falsely accused of breaking the law so you no longer have to fulfill the law. He is crucified so that you don't have to be. He is abandoned by a God he's never sinned against so that you and I don't have to be abandoned by God. He dies so you and I don't have to die. Every step of this is victory. Just doesn't look like it at first. And that's how stories go. It gets darker and darker. So those of you who love taking notes, those of you who took me seriously and you already have your Bible turned sideways because you're going to write this in the margin. Here's one sentence before I read the text from the train wreck of Pontius Pilate's life. If you wrote down one sentence, this is the sentence for you, okay? The genuine Christian gladly embraces Jesus' role of king in every part of their life. I'm going to say it two more times in case you're writing. The genuine Christian gladly embraces Jesus' role of king in every part of their life. I chose these words purposely. Not one who's putting on religious airs, putting on a mask. The genuine Christian not begrudgingly, but gladly embraces Jesus' role of king. Not just savior, not just he saved me from my sins, but he's the Lord over me, and I love it that way. Jesus' role of king in every part of their life, because a king demands all of it, okay? Not some. Let's read the text, and you're gonna see a guy who is not able to embrace Jesus as king. The title of this sermon is Not Merely Innocent, But King. And I titled it that way because all that Pilate is able to see is, well, he hasn't done anything wrong by the legal code. 
That's as, that's as far as Pilate was able to get. Chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. So there's, a lot, there's a lot to unpack here, so let me comment my way through the text. I'm not going to describe for you what just happened in verse 1, the flogging. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, uh, I was in Bible college when the movie came out. All of my professors said the exact same thing. These guys with PhDs in biblical studies, PhDs in Greek, PhDs in Hebrew. They told us students that what they witnessed in the Passion of the Christ was the most historically accurate flogging that could have possibly been shown. And in fact, it was the flogging scene, not the crucifixion, that Mel Gibson had to submit five different times over and over to only get a rated R rating. It was not going to be allowed in theaters. And what they filmed the first time was unacceptable, had to go back and edit. Not acceptable, go back and edit. What you saw, as hellish as it was, had to be edited five times to show up on a screen. It was awful. It was not uncommon for a man to die from the flogging and not make it to his cross. The vast majority of victims passed out while they were tied down. And that's what every first century reader who would hear this gospel of John, there's a reason he doesn't have to unpack verse one. They all know what this looks like. Pilate's already said this guy's innocent. What's he doing? How could you do this to an innocent guy except that you are trying to please and appease the mob in front of you? The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Do you guys see any cruel irony? Purple robe, the color of royalty. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. This has two meanings at the same time. One, they are mocking Jesus. Secondly, it's a type of racial slur. They're insinuating this messed up, bloody piece of flesh is the very best the Jews could come up with. Roman soldiers aren't from here. They're from Turkey. They're from Italy. They're from North Africa. They're from Greece. This is an international group of folks, multinational empire. Hail the king of the worthless nobodies that we have to deal with all the time that are constantly rioting. We hate these people. This is the best they can come up with. as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. 
Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, look, here is the man. This sounds an awful lot like the beginning of the book. Where somebody else of high biblical authority said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look. There's a presumption here amongst the theologians that I read this week. This is the moment where Pilate is hoping they'll be satisfied. No matter how much you hate somebody, after a flogging, there's supposed to be some degree of pity. It's already, there wasn't even a guarantee he'd still be alive and be able to stand after that beating, but he's standing. And Pilate's saying, look what I did to him. Be satisfied. Whatever your beef is with this guy, get over it. Be satisfied. Go home. Stop inciting a riot. How do you guys think that normally goes? Do human beings ever really change? Can mobs be satisfied? When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders essentially say, no, we're not taking that risk onto ourselves. By our law, he ought to die because he called himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. Huh. What would scare Pilate about what they just said? See, Pilate's not a Jew. Pilate doesn't know what Genesis through Malachi says. Probably doesn't care. See, Pilate's from a country that has invaded Greece and respected the culture so much that they preserved the language, copied the religion. So all the Greek gods got Roman names and they made Roman versions. So instead of wiping out the culture, which they sometimes did, they copied. In the secular mind, in the pagan, pseudo-secular polytheistic culture from which Pilate comes. Zeus masquerading as a man to trick humans is normal part of mythology. The sons of Zeus masquerading as a human being to test or to try, like, uh, who here has seen the Beauty and the Beast? Beauty and the Beast, five of you, or your arms don't work. That story, although it's set in 15th century France, it borrows from Greek mythology, the idea that there's this woman who's posing to be an old woman who's in need. She's actually a very powerful sorceress. She's testing to see if the prince has any compassion. And when he fails the test, she curses him. Okay? This, is, this is Greek mythology 101. 
what you and I would call superstition, the Greco-Roman world, that was their religion. And there were varying degrees of belief. How, how true is this or is this not? The idea of a son of Zeus, and Zeus was a skank, to put it lightly. He slept with everyone and everything. So Zeus having kids, it was just like everywhere. He had kids everywhere. So these demigods, including sleeping with human women. So these half, these sons of Zeus, these daughters of Zeus that are half human, half deity, that's not a new concept for Pilate. Son of God is not a new concept for Pilate. And when one of these demigods is masquerading as a mere mortal, it's never for the good and blessing and flourishing of humanity. It is always a trick. It is always a trap. And this religious group that Pilate probably hates says, the reason he has to die is because he called himself the son of God. This was not something that Jesus had said to Pilate in the interrogation. He's hearing it third party, and that's what freaks him out. Maybe this people group already knows what he has said about himself, and, and now there is this test, and I have to pass this test. Another reason to believe that Pilate's superstitions are in play here is that Matthew tells us his wife has already sent a message to him saying, you leave that man alone. I had a terrible nightmare about him last night. So your wife has had a terrible dream about him. Leave him alone. Don't touch him. Don't hurt him. And now something that plays inside your current belief system, something gets said. It's not the way the Jews intended it, but it's the way he receives it. So he's afraid. Do good things happen when people who have lots of authority are operating out of fear? Is that going to be a good day? No, it's going to be a horrible day. Verse 9. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? Boy, isn't that the question? Isn't that the question? If he's from Nazareth, you have nothing to worry about. But if he's from heaven... But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Is that a logical question? Let me ask you. Let's, let's, let's conjecture for a moment. A man who, with a word, can give you the most horrifying death the ancient world has come up with. That man, is he accustomed to his questions getting answered? Has he ever seen someone who won't defend himself in the face of crucifixion? Pilate has probably never, ever seen a guy like this. How are you not defending yourself? Don't, like, wake up, genius. Don't you know I can give you a horrible death? Wake up, snap out of it. If Pilate was antsy to crucify Jesus, this conversation would not have been so long. He's not interested in this at all. You can be a horrible jerk, which he was, and still have some general decency and self-respect of I view myself as just. All kinds of unjust people view themselves as just. Pilate's dragging this out. Pilate's like, look, you haven't done anything. I don't have any love for this group that's calling for your death. I but I sure don't need a riot. 
prophet Isaiah, almost 800 years before this, said, as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he was silent. Verse 11. And this is not defending himself. This is not begging for his life. It's something else. Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus is doing Bible teaching right now. He's preaching. He's pastorally, he's letting Pilate know his place in the pecking order. Yes, you have authority, but it's been given to you and you need to know that my father gave it to you. That's why you have the authority over me in this moment. Man, do those of us who love Jesus, do we need to be reminded of that? Even the most wicked authority was God allowed that? That'll test your faith. God allowed that person to be an authority. Romans tells us quite explicitly. But preaching also points out sin. He, he just said, he just told Pilate he was sinning. He knows what Pilate's gonna do. The one who handed me over has the greater sin. He's abused. The ones who handed me over to you are abusing this God-given authority. They're abusing your authority to get me to a cross. But he said, because he said greater, right? Greater sin. So you're still sinning. You're about to play the coward. You're about to wash your hands with water as if that could possibly work to deal with sin. That's a bit ironic. Because it's the Jews who have been given a command over a thousand years before of when to wash hands with water. And it was always just a mere symbol of cleanness. And water could, of course, never, ever wash away sin. Or verse 12, then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. Now, first of all, let me just say, you can state something that is correct, but based on its context, it's a total lie. They're right. Anyone who declares himself a king is no friend of Caesar. Uh, in this context, you and I are accustomed to uh, governors, 50 of them. We're accustomed to a president, House and Senate, the judiciary, um, and even then, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around what the Roman structure would look like. Imagine if the U.S. president never had to stand for election ever again. They were just president forever, okay? Like in China, they call him president, but he's probably not going anywhere, okay? But imagine if the president appointed the 50 governors. So the governor of California gets old and dies. Time for a new governor. And, and no, no, we all just know there's no election. The president's going to pick a new governor. Now imagine if all of the 50 states had existed independently and one state went to war with a neighboring state, conquered, 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 conquered until all 50 were an empire. 
All of the rulers in the other 49 states were accustomed as a monarchy to the leader calling himself king. And the new guy comes in and is like, oh, that's so silly and so cute. I'll tell you what, I'll let you still call yourself king. You just call me imperator. And that, that right there was the 250 years of Roman history leading up to the birth of Jesus. Caesar was fine with you calling yourself king. You just need to understand king is not the top of this totem pole. King is only ever second. And it's a title that I graciously give out from Rome. You don't call yourself king. I will bestow that title. And we're actually seeing the exact same thing right here. Through all of his suffering, through all that is happening, God the Father is bestowing the title king to his son. His son is doing joyfully, even in the midst of heinous suffering, joyfully his son is obeying him even to death on a cross. And we're seeing king language and we're hearing questions about whether he's king. He's already said, you said it. You you, you said it, king. My kingdom's not of this world. It's going to be hard for you to understand at first. I've been teaching for three and a half years about what my kingdom looks like. And you knew I was out there in the field with 20,000 people listening, but you never came. It's true. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. But I'm not sure as we read this text, I'm not sure we would ever strongly feel... feel confident that Jesus declared himself king. I think we'd be more comfortable saying the father did. If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. So they're trying to play on his fear buttons. They're trying to push where Pilate is soft. Pilate's relationship to Caesar is So thin. They're not friends. They're barely acquaintances. Pilate is here for one reason. You ready? He married Caesar's granddaughter. That's why he's here. It wasn't that Caesar liked me. It wasn't that Caesar respected me. It wasn't that Caesar saw my victory on the battlefield and it's politically expedient to put me in charge of something. I married his granddaughter which is more like an eye roll and a headache. Oh God, I should probably give him an important position. He's in the family now. And to be sure, Judea is the armpit of this empire. Nobody brags about being the governor over Judea. Nobody. You could be in Athens right now, laying down and having people feed you grapes. And instead, you're dealing with religious riot after religious riot after religious riot. His relationship to Caesar is not strong. They know it, and they're pressing on that fear button. They're pressing on it hard. Any saints here today, that when you're wavering with whether to obey Christ or not, you ever had Satan press in on you right where you were terrified? Anybody here ever disobeyed God because you were afraid? If you're a human, 
Your hand was supposed to go up at that point. We have all disobeyed God, not because we were in an angry, rebellious state necessarily. Maybe we were just terrified. Terrified of the consequences, right? Verse 13. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. For those of you that are detail people, this bothers you because the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say it was about nine o'clock. Allow me to put your fears at ease if you're a detail person. Number one, this is the ancient world. People did not have a Rolex that went down to the nanosecond, okay? They're literally just watching the sun move through the sky. Secondly, the first block of time, what we would call 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., had one name. The second block, nine to noon, had another name. And it was general in its nature. All four gospels talk about that second block of time. And that's why some translations will say about. Some point in that second block of time. The other gospels say Jesus was crucified at the start of that block. And this one sounds like he's crucified at the end of that block. Relax. Breathe out. Okay? If you had to go back 2,000 years, not with 21st century understanding, and you had to communicate time, when frankly, time isn't your agenda. Your agenda is to show that Jesus was condemned falsely, right? Your agenda isn't to say it was 1037 when they nailed him to the cross. Like, that's not the point. Okay, so relax. Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. So another look, another behold. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him. Crucify him. What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. That here is the most damnable sentence in the Bible. We have no king but Caesar. Really? Because I thought you demanded a king. You wanted to be like the other nations around you. I I thought that Samuel, as a concession, God gave permission to Samuel to go ahead and anoint Saul. He was a mess. I I thought that when you were carried away into captivity and, and the line of kings was effectively ended. I thought that you guys had talked for 400 years that you were going to have a king again and he would be Messiah and he would deliver you. Weren't you guys having these conversations the last four centuries about having a king again and be Messiah? Yeah. They just didn't want him when he showed up. Hey, Messiah, God's deliverer, you're allowed to show up under our terms and by our definitions. The 21st century doesn't know anything about that. We don't behave this way anymore. Jesus, you're allowed to die on a cross to save me from my sins, but I'm still in control of my sexuality. My sex life is mine. You leave me alone. 
Jesus, you're allowed to forgive me my sins and let me go to heaven and let me feel positive, you know, puffy feelies about the idea of going to heaven one day, but my money is mine. Keep your hands off. Savior, but not king. I get to cherry pick. I get to manufacture you like I am the potter and you are the clay. We have no king but Caesar. And this wasn't just the people of God who said it. What does the text say? The leading priests shouted back. The leaders of the people of God said, we'll wait for our next Messiah, thank you very much. He will not take our religious authority from us. He will not take our political authority from us. He sure won't call us sinners because we're awesome. When a God shows up who is so small we can control him and manipulate him, we'll worship. So, whether you're a religious person who wants to control God or what seems to be more popular in 21st century California, a secular person, um, yeah, maybe God exists, but if God exists, he or she would never ever make these kinds of demands. He or she would never disagree with my sensibilities. A loving God would never tell me no. Right? Because I'm just telling you the air we breathe. You know this already. This is the air we breathe. I apparently get to define God and love in the same sentence. Who's God when I get to make define all terms? Who's God? Me. We are absolutely today in the exact same place as Pilate. We are in the same place as the religious elite. We get to decide, is Jesus king? And it is so bloody popular in academia today to do what Pilate did. Jesus is innocent, just not a king. He was a really, really good guy. Great ethical teacher. I'm not going to say anything bad about Jesus. Just don't try to make him king over me in any way. This is normal in 2022. Nice guy, yes. Authority over me, no. Did anything Jesus ever said Anything he ever taught, anything he ever did, are there any clues, strong clues, that would ever tell us he was just a man who was really nice? Is there any evidence of that? This claim that we drink in today as if it's normal, is there evidence of this? You guys have to figure it out for yourself. I can tell you what conclusion I've come to. My conclusion is not going to help you do business with God. It's not. All of the early saints didn't say, I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade and gave my heart to Jesus. They said, I saw him. 
I saw him two days after they crucified him. I walked with him. I know him. He told me, Peter, go feed my sheep. I am in active relationship with this person. He is not a historical figure. I know him. When you and I read 1,800-year-old texts that are copies of something just 100 years previous where the person copying it was only three generations from the one who wrote it, what do they all say? They say he was God. They say he was king of the Jews. They say not that he was just a nice guy, but he walked on water and invited Peter to do the same. There is no, guys, are you ready? There's none. There is no gargantuan paper trail of first century writers who said Jesus was a really nice guy. It's too bad they killed him. There's none. You and I have drunk in the Discovery Channel special. And we liked the lie because it demands nothing from me. I still get to be God. If we treated Julius Caesar this way, it would be ludicrous. If we all started saying, Julius Caesar was a philosopher, and by the way, he was. He studied philosophy heavily. He was a philosopher who had some really nice ideas, and the Senate got together to kill him. But he was never ruler over the Roman Empire. You want to start propagating that? You know what historians are going to do? They're going to go to Ephesus, they're going to go to Corinth, they're going to go to Rome, and they're going to find actual rock, stone, temples, and buildings where Julius Caesar's name was put alongside the Roman gods, and they're going to go, "Um, why is there a 2,000-year-old temple with Julius Caesar's name on it if he was just a nice philosopher? They're going to go back to very old texts that talk about who Julius Caesar was, and they're going to go, man, it, it... How did a philosopher tell the governor of Asia to go attack that foreign army? How did a philosopher have that authority? That's odd. Pilate had to decide, is he a king? Is there room in my mind for a spiritual king or does he have to look like Caesar to be a king? I would submit to you that you and I have seen enough Caesars. There are a dime a dozen. Tyrants are everywhere. There's nothing special, nothing captivating, and nothing that makes me want to throw myself down at their feet and worship them as God. We did not need another Caesar. We did not want another Caesar. This guy's a chump and he's a jerk and he crucifies people. You have no king but Caesar? Are you kidding me? Your king is like third rate at best. And there's somebody standing in front of you who says, I am the son of God. I am the Lord of life. I'm gonna teach you and show you what love is. I'm gonna reconcile ethnic groups that don't think they can reconcile. I'm gonna show you how to be cleansed of your sins. I'm gonna show you how ethics was supposed to work because I designed you. Down to your DNA, I designed you, I made you, and I love you. You and I are the exact same spot 2,000 years later where God is standing in front of us and we can either recognize him for who he is or we can't.
Is he merely innocent? Or is he king? Pilate got it wrong. Pilate was not willing to sacrifice for his mere innocence. What we see from church history is that you're not going to lay down your life for Jesus unless he's king. So, my question for you. What does it look like for you for Jesus to be king? Not innocent. King. Here are a few bullet points that I thought through during the week. When there's pressure to be less than ethical at work, you joyfully sacrifice for Jesus and his reputation in your life. Even if that pressure is like, I might lose my job over this. When there's pressure to be less than honest with your taxes, you joyfully sacrifice for Jesus and for his reputation in your life. In other words, when the heat gets turned up, what do I do? When there's pressure to conform to what the world thinks, I joyfully sacrifice for Jesus and for his reputation in my life. We have to be a holy, separate, and peculiar people. What is comfortable is being like everybody else. That's what's comfortable. There's discipleship and there's comfort. And there's a big, thick line between the two. And that's our problem. When there's temptation to have the same sexual behavior as the rest of the world, what do we do? We should joyfully sacrifice for Jesus and for his reputation in our life. When your family says they don't want anything to do with Jesus, you stand firm and you joyfully sacrifice for Jesus and his reputation in your life. Let me unpack this just a bit. I need us to see this. I don't mean to say this in a light and fluffy way, uh, like it is a small thing to have family that is really mad at you because of your faith. I don't want to make that small. This is huge. But I need you to understand the magnitude of the temptation you're facing and the logic. When your family essentially makes the claim that Jesus is not that big of a deal and the heat gets turned up, they want you to do this, that, or the other, that absolutely flies in the face of the teachings of Christ. They want you to do this, that, and the other. When you cave in to create peace, all you do is confirm what their suspicion was. Jesus isn't actually that big of a deal. You said with your words that he was king, but all they had to do was pressure you a little bit and you gave in. So clearly he's not king. And they're going, yeah, I knew all along. It is a very sad and conflict-filled and frustrating life that Jesus talked about extensively that our family is not always going to love Jesus. When your health betrays you and you want to, as Job's wife said, curse God and die, we can choose to suffer with a godly and a hope-filled spirit. 
This world's not my home. My body's decaying. It's just going to get worse. That's all right. That's not pessimistic when you believe in resurrection. Are you kidding? Heaven is a home that has been purchased for me by the blood of Jesus. My suffering is, suffering is temporary. And my God could heal me if he wanted to. So I'm going to walk in love toward him and love toward the world, trusting him that he knows what he's doing even as my body is falling apart. I'm not going to curse God and die. I'm tempted to. Forget it. This isn't what I signed up for, God. And I open the book and I'm like, oh, this is what I signed up for. Dang it. My Savior suffered. I'm following him. I suffer as well. It's a broken world. Lord Jesus, I don't pretend under any circumstances that, that I can teach your word accurately. I definitely can't change hearts. I can't even change my own. Lord, we need you. Um, I know that I'm just like everybody else in the room. I, I like a positive story. I like encouragement. I like um, the happy stuff. But um, in your wisdom, Lord, you've shown us this part of the darkness where Jesus is falsely accused and where Jesus is not recognized as king. And um, I ask your Holy Spirit to teach us, our, our minds and our hearts, to teach us today exactly what we ought to receive from this text. God, those of us who love you, we confess that we wrestle every single day with keeping you on the throne where you belong. And we ask you for forgiveness of our sins, Lord. We ask for your Holy Spirit's strength to gladly and joyfully submit as you claim lordship over every little part of our life. God, we need your help in loving you. We need your help in loving those around us. We cannot do it on our own. And God, we beg you, we beg your Holy Spirit to change the hearts of the billions of pilots that live on planet Earth right now. God, reveal your face to them. Help them to be intellectually and spiritually honest about the claims of Jesus. God, do not allow people to miss what you are offering them. And God, allow us to, who love you to walk with a strong hope, uh, such a joy. God, that you love Pilate, even if Pilate doesn't respond, that you love him. And that it is exciting, God, to worship you who are so good and so loving even to your enemies. God, we thank you that you love the crowd who shouted crucify him, because that was us. God, we thank you for the huge number of people that after your resurrection, even though they cried out for your death, that they saw you and started worshiping you as Messiah. We thank you that this story takes a turn for the better and it takes a turn in a big way. We ask for all this mercy in the strong name of Jesus Christ and God's people said, Amen. Amen. I love you guys. There's no announcement video this week. Go love and serve people. 
Oh, um, so the elders have to have a special meeting Tuesday night to count the hanging chads. If they're just hanging on the side, we're thinking it's a yes, but if it's just dimpled, it's going to be a no. Um, I'm happy to celebrate that you guys confirmed two new elders of our church, and we're excited about that. All right? Charles and Dennis, later this week, will go through the um, ritual hazing that they didn't know about. And then we'll have two new elders. Steve is not with us because he's teaching, but I'd like to publicly, and Rob is uh, maybe still in Texas, but I'd like to recognize Renault. Steve, Renault, and Rob are elders that are rotating off right now. They have served you very, very well and very faithfully. Would you join me in thanking God for them? Now I have no announcements. Go love God and go love people.